Job chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, Job continues his speech. Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? Some remove landmarks. They seize flocks violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox as a pledge. They push the needy off the road. All the poor of the land are forced to hide. Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to do their work, searching for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and glean in the vineyard of the wicked. They spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains and huddle around the rock for want of shelter. Some snatch the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge from the poor. They cause the poor to go naked without clothing and they take away the sheaves from the hungry. They press out oil within their walls and tread wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The dying groan in the city and the souls of the wounded cry out. Yet God does not charge them with wrong. There are those who rebel against the light. They do not know its ways, nor abide in its paths. The murderer rises with the light. He kills the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me, and he disguises his face. In the dark they break into houses which they marked for themselves in the daytime. They do not know the light, for the morning is the same to them as the shadow of death. If, if someone recognizes them, they are in the terrors of the shadows of death. Remember that Job's speech began in chapter 23. In chapter 22, Eliphaz rebuked Job. He accused him of endless sin in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. And Eliphaz compiled a list of make-believe sins, trying to charge Job with some sin in order to explain his circumstances. And then he suggested that Job didn't really believe that God was watching him. And once again, Job finds himself defending himself against the accusations and the speech even though it is a speech is really way more like a prayer where Job's attention and audience becomes less and less Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar and more and more it becomes the Lord himself Job wants to sense God's presence and Remember, he's already said, where can I find God? Job speaks of being tested like gold in chapter 23, verses 10 through 12. But all the while acknowledging that there is a God and God does what he pleases. And in this chapter, Job asks, why aren't the ungodly punished? Why are they allowed to oppress the poor? And afflict the poor to isolate them. 
Job will list a series of unjust treatments of the poor and the vulnerable, which we just read in verses 1 through 17. And then Job concedes or admits that even though all of these things are happening, Job knows that there's a real God. Job knows that this life is temporal and that there is an eternity that is creeping up on each and every one of us. And he concedes that the wicked won't last long in verses 18 through 25. In pain and need, Job teaches his friends about God's power, about the fear of the Lord. And then he begins to explore what it means that God is a just God. And Job sees the unjust treatment of the poor. He sees the unjust treatment of the most vulnerable. He sees it as a great wickedness. And this becomes important because for many, many people, they want to pit social justice against the propagation of the gospel. And social justice and liberal theology will often join hands and forsake the gospel. And the Bible doesn't see it that way. Jesus, even though he speaks of salvation, he also is the source of making the right choice when it comes to how we treat each other and how we treat the poor. And Jesus is the right choice for the problem of sin and he's the right choice for salvation. But Jesus is also the right choice if you want to know what it really means to have compassion and sensitivity to really care. Poverty... Access to food, access to water, access to shelter and clothing. He talks about all of those things. Oppression. The Bible teaches in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 15, do not pervert justice. In Proverbs 17 5 it says, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. The Lord detests both. And so Job is frustrated. And remember, he's frustrated for all the same reasons that sometimes you're frustrated. Have you ever said to yourself, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what the plan of God is. I know, I'm not sure exactly what God is doing. Job doesn't necessarily understand how God can allow blatant oppression and blatant exploitation and blatant injustice. And so... Job asks the question, how am I to deal with so much unfairness? And this becomes part of the remarkable thing that we're reading and that we begin to understand. Job isn't simply concerned about his own horrible situation, but he's deeply aware of the suffering of others. And has that ever been your experience? That people in pain and people who are in trouble, they develop a sense of compassion and sensitivity. You never begin to understand just how tough things are until things are tough for you. And so we see something again. This amazing capacity to stretch our character. He cares about the suffering of others. And again, at this point in the passage and in our study, 
you should ask yourself a question. And the question should go something like this. What does this tell me about Job? The fact that he says these things and he means these things. What can I glean about his character? And the reason why this becomes an important question for each and every one of us is because it invites us to ask the same question about ourselves. When we see suffering, when we see poverty, exploitation, and injustice. Job begins to understand that there are people who are oppressed and exploited. And it's not just a physical oppression, but with the physical oppression comes mental and emotional and spiritual damage. Job understands that the poor and the vulnerable and the exploited, they need comfort. They need encouragement. They need hope. They want answers. Job senses that they need what he needs. And he's already explained it. I need God's presence. I need an explanation. You know, this is so much like Jesus. Because remember, Jesus recognized that people didn't just merely need it to be taught. They needed to be touched. And Jesus addresses the personal and the spiritual issues. He feeds people. He touches them. He heals them. He loves them. And so Job presents a long list of the horrible injustices experienced by the poor and the weak and the vulnerable. And that includes stealing their property, oppressing them, forcing them to live like wild animals, to forage for food, to seek food from the fields that have already been harvested, fields that are owned by the wicked, to deprive them of clothing against the elements and to steal their children as security payments or debt payments and the wicked force the poor to work in fields with improper clothing and insufficient food and water and then they wind up committing acts of violence they cry out for help and then Job is troubled all over again because he's crying out for help and he's wondering if God is listening and he listens to their cries for help And he understands that sometimes the poor rebel against righteousness. That's the light or God's ways. They commit secret sins in the dark, including murder and theft and adultery. And Job writes and speaks about loving the darkness rather than the light. And it becomes very reminiscent of something that Jesus said. Yet Job realizes the judgment of the wicked will come quickly and that their land will be cursed and they'll be consumed by death as quickly as the sun melts the snow. And because they mistreat mothers and because they oppress widows, they'll be buried and no one will remember them. Look at verse 1, the injustice of the wicked. He says, since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his ways? It's Job's way of saying, since times are not hidden from the Almighty, does God know the times? 
Does God, is God aware of the seasons? Does God know that the sun is coming up and the sun is going down and the earth is rotating on its axis and it spins in an orbit around the sun? Does he understand the times? But in Job's way of thinking, it's an idiomatic expression which means, is God keeping track of the time? The idea, aren't the times stored up by the Almighty? The, the implication being, isn't God aware of every person's circumstance and everybody's time and how they spend their time? And of course, the answer is yes. And the reason why Job brings this up is because he understands that the Lord knows the flawed theology of Job's friends. Remember, they don't seem to face the facts. If evil is really punishable in this life, how do you explain the exploitation of the weak and the vulnerable? How do you begin to understand what is is happening on, on this planet? But how can God close his eyes to this terrible injustice? And again, it creates another problem for Job. If God could close his eyes to him and... How can God close his eyes to other people in times of of, of troubles and this terrible injustice? And he begins to list some of them. Some remove landmarks. They seize flocks violently and feed on them. Removing the the landmark or removing the boundary is the same as stealing land. Remember, they would have places that they would mark property boundaries. You would see a, see a pile of stones. You know, we live in a culture and a society where your property is your fence. And if your fence is on your property, then that means your neighbor's property is on the other side of the fence. But imagine you live in a world where people tear down the fences and then they claim to own your property. That's what he's talking about. And by the way, it was a serious crime to remove a boundary And steal another person's property. It's even talked about later in the Old Testament about removing the boundaries. In Deuteronomy chapter 27 verse 17 there's strict, strict penalties. And he says they steal the flocks violently and feed on them. The implication being you take what doesn't belong to you in order to satisfy your basic needs. Verse 3, they drive away the donkey of the fatherless. Remember who the fatherless is, that's the orphan. And probably the widow. And if they're driving away the donkey of the fatherless, remember in that culture and society, the donkey is a means of employment and a means of transportation. They take the widow's ox as a pledge. In other words, they take the one source of work away from them. They push the needy off the road. All the poor of the land are forced to hide the wicked Oppress the needy by shoving them aside and forcing them into hiding in order to seek safety. Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to their work searching for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. And so here's the point that Job is making. 
When the wicked oppress the poor, they're left to live like animals. They forage for food. They seek food from the fields already harvested that are owned by the wicked. To live without clothing and and shield their nakedness and protect them from the weather. And to live without adequate shelter that will keep them warm and safe. And the images are very, very real to those who have ever been to the Kybera slum in Nairobi where there are half a million refugees. Or if you go to India and Mumbai and you walk into these particular places, if you see scouring the garbage dumps as people are foraging for food like wild animals. And by the way, that's one of the things that you'll witness if you happen to have the opportunity this weekend to go see the Veil of Tears. You'll see men and women who are isolated and oppressed and women whose husbands have died in that superstitious culture. They blame it on the woman. If your husband dies unexpectedly, well, there must be something wrong with her. She must be living under some sort of curse. She's bad luck, and if she's bad luck for this particular group, she's bad luck for her immediate family, and they are shunned and isolated. In India, at this very moment, they have in West Bengal an entire island that's dedicated to widows where they go because they're shunned and isolated and oppressed by their own people. And so he says they gather their fodder in the field and glean in the vineyard of the wicked. They spend the night naked without clothing and they have no covering in the cold. They're deprived of life's most basic needs, food, clothing, and shelter. They are wet with the showers of the mountains. Remember, they're living on the side of a hill. And so when dew comes in the morning, they're covered With the dew, and they huddle around the rock for want of shelter. In other words, they look for anything, anything that resembles shelter. Some snatch the fatherless from the breast, and they take a pledge from the poor. The picture is taking children, even as babies, for debt payment. In the Veil of Tears, they picture a woman in a village in the northern part of India. And she's struggling, struggling, struggling to keep her child alive. And one morning she wakes up with the desperate idea that the child is better off without her. That the only thing that she has to look forward to is to watch her child die of starvation. And so she goes into the marketplace and she sells her child to complete strangers. When my friend KP Yohanan heard about this event, his heart broke and he sent men and women into that village with the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and begged the woman and said, why, why did you do this? Why, why did you have to do this? And she told the horrible, terrible story. But fortunately, the story has a great ending because Gospel for Asia and K.P. Yohanan and, and some of the leaders, they established a Bridge of Hope school. They established an opportunity for the kids to get food every single day. And they gave them the gospel. And there's a transformed village. It's an amazing thing. When a mother has to sell her own child in order to keep it from starving to death. 
In verse 10 it says they cause the poor to go naked without clothing and they take away the sheaths from the hungry. They press out oil within their walls and tread wine presses yet suffer thirst. Here's the idea. The wicked exploit the poor. They force them to go to work. And then there's not fair wages. There's not fair compensations. The workers lack the most basic needs, protective clothing, food, sufficient water. And so the, the, the image that he paints are the poor are making oil. They're pressing the olives and the grapes. They're pressing the olive grapes inside. They're pressing the grapes. They're making the wine. But the image is they press the grapes and they press the olive oils, but they are forbidden to take a drink and they start to become dehydrated because the people are so interested in getting their product out that they oppress the people who are working for them. That's the greed of the wicked. And so in verse 12, it says, the dying groan in the city and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not charge them with wrong and this is his dilemma because the picture is the picture of victims crying out for help on the side of the road and so even in Job's day he sees this disconnect The people who are crying out, they're dying, they're groaning. But the Lord doesn't seem to do anything about it. And so here is where there's a break, if you will, in the list of crimes. Essentially, Job is repeating the question, okay, okay, why doesn't God hear the cry of the poor? Why isn't he hearing the cry of the oppressed and the the needy? And again, he's bringing it all back and saying, okay, then why isn't there an execution of justice? Why doesn't God judge the wicked for all of the evil that they're doing? You know... I came across some interesting statistics. 600,000 to 800,000 human beings are trafficked across international borders annually. The average price of a slave in Asia is $90. The average age for entry for girls and boys ranges from 11 to 14. 46% of the victims know their recruiters. The majority of the victims are female. 50% are children. Most experts believe that there are 27 million slaves worldwide. Within the first 48 hours of being on the streets, one in three children are lured into prostitution. Between 14,500 and 17,500 human beings are trafficked, not in Asia or South America, but right here, right here in the United States of America. As many as 100,000 children are sexually exploited each year, right here. 70% of female victims are trafficked into the commercial sex industry, and 30% into forced labor. And you see 
the pain and the problem and the damages. And in verse 13, Job says, there are those who rebel, or there are those who rebel against the light. They do not know its ways, nor abide in its path. Here's the idea, the wicked rebel against the light. And when you see the word light in the passage, think God's righteousness. That's what he's talking about. It's God's righteousness. It's God's ways. It's God's paths. And because of the evil in their their heart, the wicked don't want to do anything about it. They, They don't want to deal with God's righteousness. They don't want to deal with morality. They want to continue in their sin. And so they don't acknowledge what's right. In order to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish, they steer clear of anything that reminds them of the error of their ways. They steer clear of anything that will make them feel guilty. They, they keep company with people who are exactly like themselves, other habitual sinners who operate in the shadow lands of darkness or moral ambiguity. And so in verse 14, he says, the murderer rises with the light. He kills the poor and the needy. And in the night, he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight saying, no, I will see me. And he disguises his face in the dark. They break into houses. Literally in the Hebrew text, it says they dig into houses. And the reason why it says that is because, remember, in those days, they're, they're made out of mud. They would take dirt and they would mix it with clay. They're making clay blocks. They dig into the houses, which they marked for themselves in the daytime. In other words, like many thieves, they, they go into a neighborhood and they find out who's there and who's not. And they scout it out, if you will, and they mark it for exploitation. And look what it says. They don't know the light. The wicked commit secret sins in the dark because they love darkness rather than light. And again, remember the picture that Jesus gives to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 verse 19 where it says, And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. It's the same old story that you've heard. The reason why a criminal can never find a cop is because they're not looking for one. That's not what they're looking for. They are murderers and thieves and adulterers, planning deception, breaking into houses. But in the morning, in the light of the morning, they hide because they understand that in broad daylight, they run the risk of being caught. And that's why it's so outrageous, even in our own culture and society, When you hear someone say, they did that in broad daylight. And so in verse 17 it says, for the morning is the same to them as the shadow of death. If someone recognizes them, they are in the terrors of the shadow of death. The wicked love the darkness because it hides their crimes. They want the hidden deeds. And here's their idea. The idea is that they think that their deeds are hidden from God and from man. But does darkness serve as a deterrent to the God 
of the universe? No. Is it possible that we can hide things from each other? Yes. Is it possible that we can hide things from God? No. And so, they want their deeds hidden. In fact, deep darkness is their light and their friend. Because in their mind, the darkness conceals. And it provides a cover for their unrepentant ways. And so, in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, it says, And you should be sure that your sin will find you out. And in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 33, you know what it says in Matthew 25, 31. Jesus says, And when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels are with him, there shall he sit upon his throne of glory, and before him he will be gathered the nations, and he shall separate one from another, as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left, and then he shall say also to them on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And so there is a dark place, a cursed place, a quarantined place. And scholars, by the way, are divided over verses 18 through 24. Some suggest that this is a part of Zophar's missing speech in the third cycle of speeches that Job replies to in chapter 26, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 27, verses 1 through 12. Others are reluctant to remove the words from Job's lips. Others suggest that Job is quoting one of his accusers, and he's quoting them because he's getting ready and being prepared To refute the statements, if the speech belongs to Zophar or to Job, the rest of the chapter describes the inescapable judgment of the wicked by God. But remember, Job wants justice. He questions whether or not it's fair, whether it's been fairly executed in his life. And now perhaps maybe even in the lives of others. So Job retains the belief. He knows. He really believes. He knows that God's justice is perfect. He knows that at some point. Because God is a just God. And a perfect God. And a holy God. That somehow this justice will have to manifest itself. Sooner or later. But the thought didn't remove Job's longing for justice. In the here and the now. Remember, he wants to be vindicated now. And if you go to Central or South America, if you go to East Africa, if you find yourselves in a huge slum, you might walk through that slum and you might ask yourself the same question. Why is this happening right at this very moment? Why is it happening now? And so, in verse 18... They should be swift on the face of the waters. Their portion should be cursed in the earth. So that no one would turn into the way of their vineyards. 
speaking of what happens to the people who are oppressing the poor. The wicked will quickly vanish like foam on the waters. For those of you who have ever been next to the sea and you see the wave come in and you see the foam on the top of the wave and then all of a sudden it dissipates. It's gone. It's here and then it's gone. The land holdings of the wicked and their possessions will disappear. And with it, he talks about a curse. Their possessions will be cursed. As a drought and heat consume the snow waters, so the grave consumes those who have sinned. Just like the rising hot sun forces the snow to melt, so death will force those into a place of eternal submission to God. That's the picture. And again, for those of you living in Colorado, and you have 20 degrees and then 65 degrees, you have 19 degrees and a gigantic snow, and the next day it's 65 degrees, and all of a sudden, this beautiful blanket of snow just disappears as quickly as it came. It goes... In verse 20, the womb should forget him. The worm should feed sweetly on him. Sounds a little bit dark and macabre, doesn't it? I mean, if you say to some, somebody, you know what? You'll be in the dirt soon. And the worms will crawl in. The worms will crawl out. The worms will play pinochle on your snout. They'll eat your eyes. They'll eat your toes. They'll, they'll eat your nose. They'll eat the jelly between your toes. You guys all know that song. You already know that. That's what he's talking about. The worm will feed sweetly on him. He should be remembered no more. He's painting a picture of decomposition. Just like the Bible says, dust you are and to dust you will return. And then he says, the wicked are forgotten. By everyone, by their mother, by their father. The implication being that they are so ashamed of them that they want to erase the memory of them. He should be remembered no more. And wickedness should be broken like a tree. The implication being that some people engage in such reprehensible Behavior that your mother and your father try, try, try to forget what you've done. And because the wicked mistreat the childless or the widow, they're broken off like a tree that's snapped in a storm. And in verse 21 it says, For he preys on the barren who do not bear. Remember in that culture and society, if you couldn't have a child, it was a great, great tragedy. Children were often not just a means of joy, but a means of support. And does no good for the widow. But God draws the mighty away with his power. He rises up, but no man is sure of life. The implication being the wicked are dragged away by the unstoppable power of God. The wicked Deserve no assurance, he's saying, in this life or in the next life. He's giving a bitter report. 
For the person who likens himself or herself as a self-made man or a self-made woman, he's likening it to the person who says, I don't need God and I don't need anything that God has to offer. I'm a self-made man. All of the wealth that I have, all of the land that I have, all of the possessions that I have. And Job is basically saying, so you think that you've climbed the ladder of success and you think that you don't need God and you don't think that there's a God who has anything to offer you. Verse 23, he gives them security and they rely on it, yet his eyes are on their ways. Do the wicked, do the evil, do the prosperous, do sometimes the wealthy who oppress the poor have this deceptive thought that they're fine just the way that they are. And so, Job says, you may think that you're fine the way that you are. You might have a temporary security, but the implication is the wicked will give an account for every deed and everything that he does. Look at what it says. He gives them security and they rely on it Yet his eyes are on their ways. The implication being, no, there's a God. The God's keeping score. The real God, the true God. Verse 24, they're exalted for a little while. Then they're gone. They're brought low. They're taken out of the way like all others. They dry out like the heads of grain. All of the accomplishment, all of the success... All of the reward, it all disappears. Whatever security, whatever prosperity, whatever achievement. Steve Jobs was one of the richest men in the whole wide world. How much do you think he took with him? He took, yeah, he left it all. Like the grain with their head held high, they are cut down. Strong men. Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions in oil revenues, bank accounts, gold and silver. How did he die? In a sewage tunnel, he was shot in the head. Saddam Hussein, he was found in a hole with one, no, excuse me, $4.1 million in cash in the hole where he was hiding. They drug him out of the hole and they hung him by the neck until he was dead. Can you imagine? You're like a king. People live or die based on what you may or may not do. And then all of a sudden you're gone. In verse 25, Now if it is not so... Who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? This is Job's way of saying, I dare you to show me otherwise. I dare you to present evidence to the contrary. Remember what he said, that God's judgment is certain. Is certain Job challenges, or Zophar challenges, anyone to prove him wrong. Check out the facts. We want fairness and we want justice. And I think the reason why we want fairness and because we want justice is is it's a tribute to the fact that Genesis is true, that we're made in the image of God. Do you know why fairness and justice is such an important part of your life? Because God made you that way. 
It's one of the very first things a child learns. That's not fair. They have this profound sense of moral equity. Especially when it comes to them. We have this sense that if we do good, people will do good to us. If we act fairly, they'll act fairly. If we act honestly, they'll act honestly. We hope, we hope that we won't suffer without a cause. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8, remember Solomon wrote, For God shall bring every work into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or bad, whether evil. I don't have time to tell you all of these, but if you have the opportunity and you're listening by tape, Matthew 25, 31 through 33. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 9. Titus chapter 3, verse 7. That being justified by grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, this is what's really interesting. God is just. God will deal with sin. But God is merciful to sinners. That's the good news. Job is frustrated. He doesn't always understand the plan of God. He doesn't always understand why God would allow blatant oppression, exploitation, and injustice. And so Job asks the question, how do you explain so much unfairness? Has anyone ever said that to you? Ask you that question? And you know what the right answer is? I have to admit I don't have all the answers. I want an explanation. It's hard for me to admit I don't know. But let me ask you a question. What do you think people appreciate more? When someone looks you in the eye and says, you know what? This is an important question. It's a legitimate question. It deserves an answer. And I don't know the answer. Versus... Something that a person makes up in the hopes that they will be right. Which do you appreciate more? An honest, I don't know. Or someone pretending to know something that they really don't know. People experience hurt. They experience suffering. They experience injustice. They experience exploitation. And we might be able to offer... A partial answer. We might be able to offer an incomplete or an inadequate answer. We can talk about the problem of living in a broken world. And we can talk about the problem of sin. And we can talk about how sin has damaged human beings. And it causes them to sometimes act selfishly. We may not have a complete answer. But you know what the book of Job is going to do? It's going to insist on a greater sensitivity, a larger heart, a deeper compassion. Not just to simply look at a homeless person and go, I wonder why they're homeless. But to care about them as human beings. 
And so we focus on God's presence. We can focus on God's promises. We can focus on God's future benefits. There is a promise and there is a future benefit. And for those of you who have enough courage to make it all the way to the end of the book of Job, God's going to show up. He's not going to show up with an answer, though. He's going to show up with his presence. And his presence, in part, becomes the answer. Remember, Job's already admitted that he's in a white-hot fire. He also has admitted in chapter 23 that he's going to come out of the fire burning bright. Job knew, either in this life or in the next life, he was going to receive his reward and his answer. Job understands the justice of God and the sovereignty of God. And it's not just fatalism. He's not, just, he's not speaking about fear or superstition. He's, he's talking about the hard questions and he's looking for the hard answers. And he's willing to explore the mysteries Of God's judgment, of God's justice, of God's grace, and of God's desire for affection and devotion. Do you realize that God wants your attention? And then he wants your affection? And he wants your devotion. How do we know that? Exodus thirty four fourteen. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous. Is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 5, 9. You shall not bow down to them. Nor serve them. For I the Lord your God. Am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the, fallen, of the fathers. Upon the children to the four, third and fourth generation. For those who hate me. But showing mercy. But showing mercy. But showing mercy. Mercy. Mercy to thousands who love me. There is a God who loves you. He's looking for a reason to demonstrate mercy. It was Martin Luther King who said, true peace is not merely the absence of tension. It's the presence of justice. Martin Luther King was also right when he wrote, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so there's part of the invitation. To think about justice. To think about the poor. But all the while to think about justice and the poor in light of salvation and redemption and the gospel. Is it a good idea to give a cold cup of water to someone who's thirsty? The answer is yes. Is it a good idea to give them food, clothing, and shelter? The answer is yes. But I'm going to suggest to you, as wonderful as that is, there's something even more wonderful. And that's to give them a cold cup of water in Jesus' name. To give them something to eat in Jesus' name. To give them something to wear in Jesus' name. The Lord will punish sin, but he offers mercy to the sinful. And you know what's really interesting? 
for those who dare just for a moment to think about God's justice. And that's this. When you begin to understand God's justice, does it even for a moment change God's mercy? Not even for a moment. God is just. And his justice remains unchanged by his mercy. Do you know how we know that? Do you remember the story in Genesis chapter 18? Do you remember, remember, remember when the Lord shows up and Abraham begins to plead for Sodom and Gomorrah? He understands that his nephew Lot is there with his wife and with his children. And you remember, remember he says, surely you wouldn't do such a thing. Kill the godly with the wicked. Should not the judge of all the earth be fair? Do you remember Abraham saying that to the Lord? Won't the God of heaven, won't he be fair? By the way, did Abraham change God's mind about judging Sodom and Gomorrah? I'm going to suggest to you he didn't. I think we're much closer to the truth when we concede that God changed Abraham's mind. That Abraham begins to probe God's mind. He probes his mind and he wonders, how far will God's mercy and goodness go? How far does his mercy and goodness go? Will you spare the city for 50 people? Excuse me, please forgive me. Will you spare the city for 40 people? I know I sound like a crazy man. Chalk it up to me living in the desert all of these years. Would you spare the city for 20 people? Do you remember what he said? Yeah, I'll I'll spare the city for 20 people. He goes, I know it's insane. I know it's crazy. But Abraham's doing the math. Lot, his wife, two daughters, their husbands, Surely, Lot's presence and Lot's family, surely, surely, those six people, there must be four others. There's at least ten. There's at least ten people in the city. Will you spare the city for ten people? He says he'll spare the city for ten people, but there aren't ten people there. How far does God's mercy go? How far does it stretch as you begin to probe the mind of God and the heart of God? How deep is his love? How great is his mercy? And then all of a sudden you begin to understand something. Our prayers don't change God's mind, but our prayers may cause God to change our minds. We pray. Lord, could you save somebody like me? Could you have mercy on somebody like me? Could you forgive somebody like me? In the end, God guarantees justice. And in the end, God despises injustice. We learn that in the end, God is just. Why? Because it's a part of his nature. It relates to who he is. And how he governs the universe. And we're made in the image of God. 
And because we're made in the image of God, we desire justice or mercy depending on who you are. And I know who you are. When governments and churches are unjust, the poor suffer. And that suffering and poverty, and here's the point. It isn't just the suffering and the poverty that is reprehensible. It is the fact that the suffering and the poverty hinder the suffering and impoverished to worship the Lord. To come before him. To experience grace and mercy. And so part of the point to alleviate suffering and poverty is to bring people to a place where they can acknowledge the God of the scripture who has a high regard for the poor and the powerless. The Bible's repeated testimony is this. Injustice attacks the poor. The repeated testimony of the Bible is the children of God are loved by God and cared for by God. And his deep concern is for each and every one of them. And so now all of a sudden we begin to understand something just a little bit better. Next week, chapter 25. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you That in the end you guarantee justice and in the end you despise injustice and in the end you are just. And in the end, you're merciful. And that mercy triumphs where justice is deserved. Mercy for sinners, mercy for the wicked. Mercy for the people who in confidence will turn from their sin and they'll turn to you. Mercy for people who have found themselves in the difficult situation where instead of being the oppressed, they were the oppressor. Instead of being taken advantage of, they took advantage of. And Lord, it's hard for each and every one of us to think of ourselves as advantaged. But Lord, we thank you and we praise you that grace and mercy has redeemed us and given us an opportunity to trust you, trust you, trust you, to love you, love you, love you. And Lord, we invite the book of Job to do what you've intended it to do, to expand our sensitivity, to deepen our compassion, and to provide us with a deep desire to see this world the way you see this world, to love what you love and hate what you hate and have compassion on the people who need it most, the least, the last, the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Sing about God being the counselor. Counselor, comforter, keep.
Offer hope when our hearts.